This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? So, Mark, what now? Well, we've got our friend Rui Tashira with us uh, today, who's written with John Judas a fantastic new book called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? And it's fascinating because in 2004, he and John Judas wrote this book called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which was Kevin Phillips's famous book, a play on Kevin Phillips's famous book about the emerging Re- Republican majority, which was predicting a long uh, ascent of conservatism uh, in the age of Reagan and beyond. And they were sort of predicting the same thing for the Democrats. And now he's written, where have all the Democrats gone? So he's clearly rethinking his thesis. And, you know, this is a guy who is a liberal, who uh, hails from the, the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party, as, as Ronald Reagan used to refer to being the Republican wing of the Republican Party. And he's very concerned about the direction of his party and what's happening. And he doesn't, the left doesn't seem to be listening. Look, it, one of the things that really strikes me uh, when we talk to to Rui and and you know when we talk to Karl Rove is this absolutely weird manic uh, political analysis that Washington loves to engage in. So Democrats win an election and it's like, and we will win forever. Demography is destiny, right? And George W. Bush wins, and you know Karl Rove is celebrated, and it's like you know Republicans are going to be forever the candidates, and of course the American people are hugely. Fickle. What's interesting to me is that everybody talks about the changes in the Republican Party. Oh, let's all hand ring. Why can't it be Mitt Romney? Why does that have to be the party of Trump? And the answer is, this ain't your dad's Democratic Party either. And Rui goes into painful, painful detail, not simply about how the Democratic Party has been captured by the woke mafia, but that the Democratic Party doesn't get that in fact this is going to be fatal in at the voting booth at some point. No, so I mean, there's been a, we've, it's been written a lot about a lot, but there's there's this huge political realignment of the working class. So the Democratic Party was historically the party of the working class, the party of the unions, and all the rest of it, and they sort of started moving to the left on all these cultural issues and economic issues, and they alienated those folks, and no, and for a long time. There was nobody championing the working class. The Republicans were the party of sort of the corporate America. The Democrats were, you know, in name the party of the working class, but becoming the party of the cultural elites. And they were getting ignored. And what Trump did when he came in in 2016 is he suddenly spoke for them. And they rallied around him because this was a segment of the electorate that nobody was representing their interests in Washington, Democrats or Republicans. And now they have sort of aligned themselves with the Republican Party. And the Democrats, in turn, have become the party of uh, coastal elites and minorities. And they think because of this demography as destiny, because America is going to is heading towards becoming a majority minority country over time, that they really don't need white voters and they don't need white working class voters. They can just cobble together this minority elite 
college-educated coalition, and that's going to be enough. And what's happening now is they're finding, well, the minorities aren't exactly going along, (laughs) that there's increasing minority support for the Republicans because they don't like the crazy left economic policies, and they don't like the crazy left cultural policies, and they certainly don't like uh, the crazy left border policies. You know, the Democrats thought, oh, we're going to be the party of uh, uh, pro-immigration, and like a lot of immigrants who came here and followed the rules are like, no, I'm not the party of illegal immigration. I I had to wait, you know, 10 years to get into this country, and I had, and I waited for my green card, and I, you know, I, I, I followed the rules. I, I followed the rules, and damn it, why, why should everybody else get to jump the queue? That's exactly, exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. I, I think that's 100% true. But as usual, we have the irony of two Republicans talking about the problems with the Democratic Party, so we should bring, <laughs> we should probably bring in our So uh, everybody probably remembers Rui from the last time we had him on. In fact, I think we've had him on a couple times because he came on when when they founded. um, He founded with a couple of fellow ex-Center for American Progress people, the Liberal Patriot, which is their terrific substacks. Rui is, but Rui is now uh, a defector to the other side. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He focuses uh, on just the things we've been talking about right now, party coalitions, future of American electoral politics. His new book, as Mark said, is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extreme, which he wrote with John Judas. And the fact that he's at the American Enterprise Institute says it all. <laughs> well, you know what? It says such great things about us. We, it does. We, I agree we with love that. Smart, we love smart people. Yay us. Absolutely. And here's a smart person, and here's our interview. Rui, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's so exciting to have you back on. So you and John Judas wrote a book in the uh, 2000s called The Emerging Democratic Majority, which was a play on Kevin Phillips's Emerging Republican Majority, which mm-hmm. had predicted a, a, a new conservative era. You were predicting a new progressive era. Fast forward to 2023, and you're publishing a book called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> right. Well, that's... Uh... That's a question we frequently get asked, and uh, I think the the Christmas way to put it is when we wrote the book, we were looking at the shifting terrain of American politics at that time, and we looked at the rise of the non-white vote, we looked at the rise of professionals who were realigning to the Democratic Party, we looked at the uh, changes in the voting patterns of women, particularly single, working, and highly educated women, we looked at the rise of the more cosmopolitan post-industrial areas of the country, which are growing fast and which are also realigning toward the Democrats. And we thought that, you know, you can make a case that Democrats at that point were more consistent with the views and preferences of these rising constituencies. Uh, and if they could appeal to them and not go too far to the left or whatever, or just, we actually called it progressive centrism when we wrote the book, they could stick to that sweet spot. They could really form a potentially dominant coalition, at least for a while. But we had a very important caveat in the book, which quickly got forgotten, which was there are an awful lot of white working class voters in this country. Democrats have been losing, were losing altitude among those voters, and they couldn't really make this new political arithmetic work unless they kept that core, a significant core of that support, maybe 40% nationwide closer to 45 or whatever in, in uh, some of the Midwest states where white working class voters loom so large. So that we, we, we stressed that very carefully, but I think it quickly got forgotten. 
and especially it gets forgotten after Obama gets elected in 2008. Seems like our coalition has come together. Everything's great. The rising American electorate is rising. And people didn't notice or preferred not to pay any attention to the fact they actually did relatively well among white working class voters, significantly better than Kerry. Uh, and he really did perform well among that demographic. Uh, the Democrats get hammered in 2010. Uh, a lot of that white working class support disappears. It's really a big driver of what happens in that election where they lose 63 seats. Obama comes back and wins in 2012 uh, to some extent because he runs a sort of populist campaign against Mitt Romney. And he does bring back, again, some of these white working class voters, particularly in the upper Midwest. And he doesn't win that election without them. But everybody forgets this immediately. Republican, you know, sort of autopsy forgets it. And Democrats really forget it because it's kind of like, well, okay, this is great. We won two straight elections with Barack Obama. You know, we're, we're riding the crest of the wave. There are no problems here. We're just, you know, we're just going to keep it locked. And certainly our coalition will grow over time. And that's where you get a lot of this really, you know, sort of triumphalist coalition of the ascendant demographics is destiny kind of stuff. But, you know, clearly 2014 and 2016 are then cut points where the chickens come home to roost, so to speak. White working class voters bail out en masse from uh, the Democrats, again, particularly in the Midwest, and Trump becomes president. And that was, a, you know, in 2014, 2016 is when John and I really start rethinking our ideas and, you know, sort of the way the Democrats are evolving doesn't seem likely it can keep this coalition together, at least in a big way. And we're back to sort of a stalemate in American politics that'll kind of Peter back and forth between between the parties as they fight over their various constituencies and the Democrats, we thought at that point, might even start losing non-white working class voters, which in fact did happen in the 2020 election where Biden did manage to, to squeak it out, but there was very significant attrition among non-white working class voters, particularly Hispanic working class voters, where the Democratic advantage probably dropped by around 20 points nationwide. So... Um, why was this? Well, we try to explain that in this book. Uh, we look at first the opening of the Great Divide between the working class and college-educated uh, voters and how they experienced the economy in the late part of the 20th century and how Democrats were viewed in many ways to being complicit in that due to trade deals and deregulation, the decline of the union movement, which reduces the working class anchor of the Democratic Party. Uh, and then going into the 2000s, um, we see, uh, and I, I think you I won't get much disagreement about this here, the embrace of the Democrats of a sort of cultural radicalism of race, gender, immigration, crime. It really, it really becomes quite a different party in terms of its, its professed priorities and sort of almost culture around all these things. It just seems very, it's very alien to a lot of working class voters who are much more normy and moderate in their, their views on all these issues. And I actually we include climate in that uh, also as a sort of culturized issue. Because most working class voters are not, in fact, dying to run their whole house on renewables and buy an electric car and all this stuff. They're really, you know, they're more all of, I mean, Obama, he had it kind of right, all of the above. But again, that's really been forgotten in today's Democratic Party, which has moved away from the relative moderation of, of the Obama years and its cultural outlook, uh, and completely sort of placed their bets on, you know, again, this rising American electorate. And are very so influenced. We talk about this in the book by this sort of highly educated liberal part of the party that uh, dominates what we call the shadow party, the NGOs, 
the, the activist groups, the advocates, the foundations, a lot of academia, and a big part of the Democratic Party infrastructure itself, and a lot of the media, very dominated by this kind of cultural uh, liberalism slash radicalism, and, and put a high priority on it in terms of their politics, push the Democratic Party in that direction of taking a really lax attitude toward crime, you know, decriminalizing crime in some cases, uh, you know, quasi-open borders, very bad, um, you know, it, uh, basically biological sex doesn't matter anymore, trans women are women, you know, we should have puberty blockers and surgery available uh, at the drop of a hat for people just gender dysphoric children, and of course we must go all in on the climate issue because it's an existential crisis and we don't immediately transform the basis upon which our industrial society runs, we're all going to die. So uh, none of this makes a lot of sense sense as politics or or substance, uh, we believe. And I do think it's part of the reason why Democrats have been hemorrhaging for working class voters of all races in the recent past and, and brings us to this to this place we are where the historic party of the working class ain't really no longer the party of the working class, at least in a strict quantitative sense. Republicans now get more working class voters overall than the Democrats. I have to say, um, <laughs> that litany reminded me why I'm a Republican. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I understand, and, 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 you know, we'll talk a little bit about the numbers, and you've got a lot of very persuasive data in your, in your work. Um, but what's, what's so interesting to me is, is the, is the why, um, you know, you talked about how this happened and, and the displacement of the traditional working class core, the union core, um, this sort of, um, what we think of, I think, uh, you know, people of a certain age think of as traditional leftism, right? Mm -hmm. In, in, and this, this gets crowded out by this sort of woke, garbage, if I can just categorize all the, you know, Mm -hmm. climate hysteria, trans hysteria, um, uh, hysteria, hysteria, that that is now at the heart, not just of the Democratic Party, but of all of the institutions that we think of occupying the center left, right, which is so the New York Times, the Washington, but everybody is this left, not that old left. But can you just dive down a little bit and talk about and talk about how how this happened, how how immigrants went from being a, a treasured part of the Democratic Party to being avatars of brownness. How how does this happen? Well, that's a that's a good question. Um, I do think that uh, we see this really starting to to bite in the two thousands, and uh, I think at that point, for example, it wasn't uncommon to have people write stories about some of the peculiar things that were happening on the campuses and some of the odd perspectives some of our youngsters seem to have and you know, some of the histrionic stances they take on a lot of these issues. And some people would criticize that and say, ooh, that's not such a great idea. And the kind of standard reply was, oh, don't worry about it. It's just on the campuses. It'll stay there. They'll grow up. They'll come out into the work world. Well, a funny thing happened. <laughs> they, they did go out into the work world and they took all these views with them. Uh, and they started to occupy the lower reaches of a lot of these uh, infrastructures. And, uh, you know, they basically pretty aggressively pushed those kinds of ideas, even as, uh, you know, the, the people who actually ran these institutions were themselves probably moving in that direction. And you have a sort of 
unfortunate situation where these younger cohorts uh, start pushing the people who run these institutions to kind of meld all these progressive issues together into one massive blob of progressive commitments. I mean, if you believe in one thing about climate, you have to believe in this other thing about race, which means you have to believe this other thing about immigration. And those who resist these advanced ideas, it's really just showing that you're not with it, you're racist, you're xenophobic, you don't care about the climate, whatever. Um, and this in turn interacts, you know, this sort of within institution feedback loops with social media, which is a very important part, I think, of how a lot of this stuff gets weaponized in the, the left of center institutional world, um, where it becomes actually <coughs> something you pay a price for if you don't sort of sign up and don't signal your virtue on these various things. And this just gets worse in the teams. I mean, Black Lives Matter arises in 2013-14. We saw the way Hillary Clinton ran in 2016, which to some extent really was a response to what a lot of people in her base and her activists and supporters really wanted. Um, and it really crests with the George Floyd summer of 2020 when things really go completely bonkers and everybody has to signal their 150% support for everything Black Lives Matter stands for. And people start reading crazy books like White Fragility and How to Be an Anti-Racist. And it becomes quite acceptable to like say that anybody who doesn't sign on to all this completely is just in denial. They're, they're, they're racists, right? I mean, they're, they're committing microaggressions on a daily basis. They have to confront their implicit bias. Don't we all know now, don't we all know now the United States is a white supremacist society, you know, born in slavery, marinated in racism and, you know, a dystopian hellhole for non-white people to this very day. I mean, this is kind of crazy stuff, I think. But this is the sort of thing in left wing circles you had to nod along with. Oh, yeah. Right. That's sure. I mean, who could argue with this, <laughs> this lucid reasoning and, and the evidence behind it? So uh, that kind of. I mean, it just really, it kind of like halves the IQ of a lot of people on the left where they feel they have to accept a lot of stuff that's basically clearly nonsense and sanction the people who don't and all sing from the same hymn. And again, all the, put all these issues together. You know, you have to be for open borders. You have to be for decriminalizing crime and defunding the police. You have to be for, you know, defending the, you know, trans rights where a lot of this stuff isn't really trans rights. These are policy issues, right? I mean, should we medicalize children of gender dysphoria? That's not a right. Nobody has a right to puberty blockers. It's a, it's a policy question. So, but uh, all of this stuff was, was sort of shoved to the side. I mean, this is all part of what it means to be on the left in today's world. And, of course, we see it coming up in the, the Gaza-Israel conflict as well, where this tsunami of pro-Palestinian and really intrinsically pro-Hamas sentiment starts arising and taking over a significant section of the Democratic Party. So <clears throat> this radicalism, which, you know, spilled out of the campuses, occupied the lower and middle in, uh, reaches of the infrastructure, captured a lot of the institutional leaders and donors and foundations, um, and then is amplified through social media, I think is, is a really big part of the story, which in turn, you know, pushes the Democrats further in relying on you know, a base of college-educated voters, particularly liberalish college-educated voters, among whom they get Soviet-style levels of support at this point, has been a growing constituency, gives them a lot of money, staffs their institutions. Um, and these people are in a, you know, 
not to be unkind about this, they're kind of in a bubble. They, their contact with ordinary working class voters is pretty tenuous. Um, and they really don't even like a lot of these people. So, you know, uh, it, it's a funny situation to be in where the people running the party, the working class, have like very little interest in actual working class voters. At least so it seems to me. I, I have one little follow up because uh, you said something that struck fear into my heart like nothing I've heard recently, Good heavens. which is that the insanity of the 60s and 70s and 80s in colleges actually persisted in these people. And then they became, then they were the ones who ended up transforming the left. I say that because the assumption always is, you know, it's that great Winston Churchill line, you know, if you're not a liberal when you're young, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're older, you have no brain. And and there's there's this assumption that people will grow up. If you're telling me that not only do they not grow up, but that they take these unbelievable, execrable, dangerous ideas into their workplace, into our media, then I think about what I see now on college campuses and my head wants to explode. Is that is that right? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I think in the past, I mean, if you I mean, a lot of these ideas do go back to some of the more radical parts of the 60s and 70s. But uh, I think at that point, a lot of the people who were involved in these movements and came out of these colleges really did moderate significantly. I mean, for example, there was a whole political correctness wave in the early 90s, which actually crested and then went down during the Clinton years. Uh, I didn't think we'd... In a way, you sort of have to reach a tipping point where the people who come out of the colleges with these ideas, first of all, they become... You know, I think the colleges in the 2000s become significantly more oriented toward these kinds of ideas. Uh, and then you, would need, you need a larger cohort of them coming out uh, you need the institutions into, that they inhabit to become ever more friendly to these ideas, you know, have a sort of institutional capture. And once you have that, once you have a, a sort of critical mass weaponized by social media, these institutions, and you capture the leadership or pressure them, then it becomes, you know, of course these ideas stick around <laughs> because there's no moderating influence anymore. It's sort of They've won. <laughs> and I think that was not true until this century, that the more radical people with some of these pretty crazy ideas um, uh, could stick with them. They couldn't in, in the past because there were too many things pushing them in the other direction. Um, but now there's not much pushing them in the other direction. And I think that's why you get what you get. And that's why I think in some ways people argue at times we've we've reached peak woke. And I think this might be true in terms of some parts of society, maybe just everyday discourse among ordinary people. I think polit some politicians have steered away from this. They don't want to at least say a lot of these things. But when you look at institutions and institutional capture, I'm not so sure we reach the end of this road, really, and whether we're actually on much of a decline. I mean, I think a case can be made in some ways. You look at, uh, you know, newspaper mentions and stuff. Some of it isn't has changed a bit. There's some data on this. But but I think it's very important what's happened to these institutions and who staffs them. And the, the, the lack of pushback within these institutions uh, to this stuff. So I think, you know, not to say we're necessarily on the road to complete perdition, but uh, we're not out of the woods yet by any stretch of the imagination, I don't think. So there's been a political realignment 
over this period where the Democratic Party used to be the party of the working class. Now the Republican Ooh. Party is essentially becoming the party of the working class and the Democrats have become a coalition of minorities and cultural elites, coastal cultural elites. But the minorities don't seem to be going along with the plan. <laughs> there's, you know, there's a New York Times Siena poll came out that Trump is winning 22% of black voters in six of the most important battleground states. Um, He only won 8% of the black vote in in 2020, 6% in 2016. No Republican has won more than 12% in half a century. And yet you're seeing black voters coming over to the Republican Party. You're seeing some of this with the Hispanic voters as well. I mean, what happens to the Democratic Party if they become just the party of cultural elites and they can't win these a super majority of these minority voters? Are they headed towards permanent minority status? Yeah, no, that is a ticking time bomb for, for the Democrats. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, everybody knows in a sense about the movement of white working class voters away from the Democratic Party, which... Many in the Democratic Party after 2016, and I wrote about that, and it's part of what ultimately pushed me out of the Center for American Progress is, you know, you shouldn't just think of all these voters as being deplorables, as being racist and xenophobes. There's reasons why they voted for a guy like Trump. There's reasons why they detest the elites of both the Democratic and Republican Party. There are things they're dissatisfied about. There are things that have happened to the communities they live in. So we have to take this seriously and not just be dismissive. So... Uh, but I think Democrats could be complacent about that because they had in their mind this way of dismissing these voters. But now I think we see these non-white working class voters, Hispanic working class voters, black working class voters start to move away from the Democrats and entertain the idea of voting for Republicans. And, um, you know, that should be a wake up call because their, their political arithmetic is not sustainable uh, the more this goes on. And certainly it prevents them from any kind of spell of dominance. One of my favorite stats, if you look at the if look at the catalyst data, for example, shows that this is a big data firm that does really good work in terms of basic demographics. Obama carried non-white working class voters by 67 points in 2012. Biden carried them by only 48 points in 2020. In the Times poll you're referring to, uh, Biden only carries them by 16 points. Wow. That's a huge drop. And we see this in a lot of other polls that are coming out. You know, as, as you were saying, Mark, this significant attrition among these Hispanic and black voters. Uh, and again, it's typically driven by working class voters within those demographics. Uh, Hispanics, for example, in the same poll you alluded to, I think Biden has maybe like an eight point lead and they don't break it down by working class and not. But I'd be pretty sure that it's really compressed among these working class Hispanics, especially. So that's remarkable. I mean, Democrats carried Hispanics by 25 points in 2020. If it's in the single digits or very low double digits, that's a huge swing, which will have implications for the election. And I think all of these things, I mean, I think there's a temptation among Democrats, and I've written something about this to be kind of complacent about these poll results because, oh, well, you know, it's early. You know, look at how terrible Trump is. When we hammer, you know, Trump on democracy and, and don't forget abortion rights, you know, we're going to push that issue and it's really going to fix all the problems. And don't forget Bidenomics. It'll eventually kick in and people will be happy campers. I think they're kind of kidding themselves. I think these are real problems and really big problems. And they have the roots that go back a number of years now. It's not just a one off. It's not just a temporary spell of madness on the part of the electorate. It's part of the way 
they view the party these days and they view Joe Biden, they view what he's done and they view what the party stands for. Now, that said, uh, do I think they're going to change much between now and 2024? Uh, probably not. I mean, it's, uh, it's getting a little late in the day. They're kind of locked into their current approach. Uh, you know, Biden knows if he tries to do anything or say anything really different. The activist part of the party and social media will come down and they'll make a ton of the bricks. Plus, a lot of people on his staff who, who staff the administration, they're, they don't, they're not particularly moderate on a lot of this stuff. So, you know, they're, they're sort of like the Trojan horse inside the administration. Uh, so, yeah, I think uh, I'm not holding my breath in any big changes through 2024. And, you know, it's possible, you know, we don't want to get too in the weeds on handicapping the horse race, but I think it's quite possible Biden may still squeak through. I think Trump is a very flawed candidate for many reasons. Um, but he could also lose. You know, so you could easily lose. Sean Trendy wrote a good piece just a couple of days ago about how, yes, Trump could win the 2024 election. And in fact, he's the favorite at this point. And, you know, I think Sean makes a pretty, pretty good case. So if that happens, I mean, presumably there will be some rethinking uh, after 2024. We would hope, I would hope, in fact, even if Biden squeaks through, if he does squeak through and they lose the Senate, which is probable, they're already down one seat because of Manchin retiring. Um, I would hope it would lead to some rethinking, but uh, we'll see. Um, just from experience as a Republican, where we've lost a bunch of elections and didn't do any rethinking, uh, I'm, not, I'm not confident that the Democrats are going to be more mature in their response than we have been. Um, but here, yeah. here's a question for you. I mean, the, this idea that, you know, demography is destiny and that the Democrats were become, going to, because of the rise of minorities, uh, that this, they were automatically going to vote for Democrats, you know, that, that assumption for a party that's, you know, obsessed with, with systemic racism, isn't that kind of systemically racist to assume that people are going to vote for you just on the basis of their skin color, as opposed to their economic interests and their, their other concerns about the state of the country? Isn't the assumption of this, you know, really kind of racist? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the Democratic Party's historic advantage has been when it's been seen, its advantage has been biggest when it's been seen as the party of the common man and woman, of the ordinary American, you know, across races, across regions of the country. Um, and obviously a big part of that was its identity of the ordinary, in terms of identifying and promoting the interests of the ordinary working and middle class American. I mean, Democrats... You know, their brand historically has been for universal uplift, right? I mean, we're for using government in a responsible way to uplift, you know, all of the people who who need to be uplifted. We're, you know, we don't want to just coddle the rich like they say the Republicans do and so on. So that's pretty good brand. But I do think it's it's fallen into uh, disuse among Democrats because they have all these other priorities, which are quite aggressive about. Uh, and if you tell, for example, I mean, you, you can't assume, and this is really what you're getting at, Mark, that all of these voters who are non-white are going to continue voting for the Democrats just because you talk a lot about racism, about the structural problems in the country. I mean, one of the biggest mistakes Democrats made, I think, in terms of the Hispanic population, was new, routinely starting to refer to them as people of color. That's not how Hispanics think of themselves. They think of themselves as Americans, as upwardly mobile Americans, as hardworking Americans as people who want to get ahead in the world and uplift their family, and they want safe streets and good health care. 
and all, all these other like very concrete mundane things that they thought the Democrats were more on the side in terms of producing than the Republicans, hence their loyalty. And of course, you know, Democrats party friendly to immigrants. That's good. Nobody wants a party. They don't want a party that's unfriendly to immigrants. Um, they know they're a bit different than your ordinary uh, white bread American. But, you know, they don't they don't wake up in the morning and think, my God, I live in this dystopian hellhole called the United States. And here I am as a brown person. And boy, life is so tough. Uh, no, that's not the way they think about the world. And I think slotting Hispanics into that bucket and sort of over-indexing on how concerned they supposedly were about the immigration issue has been a big mistake on the part of the Democrats. They stopped treating them like normie, the normie working-class voters they are, who they maybe had a little extra advantage of because, you know, we're the pro-immigrant party and sort of threw them into this other bucket that I think a lot of Hispanics don't recognize themselves within. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'd... Uh, I know you have strong opinions about this, Mark. I mean, I don't know if I'd call that racist, but it's certainly highly questionable. No, it, it, it is. But I mean, there is this strain of racism that you can't help but feel is simply being exploited with, with a cynicism that, that's so unpleasant. So the question I wanted to ask you was actually about crime. So, I mean, one of the things that we know, right, that is a, a known fact is that not only are certain minorities disproportionately committing crimes, but absolutely their communities are disproportionately the victims of crimes, right? So you've got, you know, if I just think about Washington, D.C., and I think about the black community in Washington, D.C., right, in addition to having shitty schools, in addition to having a, a mayor that doesn't care about them, in addition to being pushed out into the suburbs because of, of, of you know, gentrification and displacement – these people are are just like everybody else in America. They don't want to be the victims of crime. They do want to have better schools. They do want to have their children do better than themselves. And yet this seems to be completely lost in the insane, you know, abolish the police movement in the insane, um, you know, treatment of these communities as as monoliths without human beings in them for whom, you know, they wake up every morning and the first thing they think is not, you know, damn it, have I run out of milk? They think to themselves, how can I express my blackness today? What, why, I see this, and I'm a conservative, why don't Democrats who purport to care about these communities and who often come from these communities, why don't they see that? Yeah, well, another another good question. I mean, actually, it's funny. <laughs> Thank you. I just I just wrote about crime uh, today. A piece came out in the Liberal Patriot called "The Democratic Position on Crime is is a Political Crime," <laughs> and in that I try to explain some of these these aspects of the crime issue and how Democrats have started have been dealing with it lately. Um, look, there's no doubt about it. Uh, people who live in poor black and poor Hispanic communities, which allegedly Democrats are so concerned about, they are 100% for more police, better policing for sure, but more police. They're extremely concerned about public safety. Uh, there's some data in this latest thing I wrote that show that for black, Hispanic, and Asian voters, you know, their number two issue after inflation is crime and public safety. Uh, the thing they're most worried about if Biden wins the election is, you know, sort of crime becoming even worse and public safety and homelessness becoming even worse. Um, I mean, this should be 
if anybody who has any contact at all with these communities or just thinks logically and rationally and without prejudice about, you know, what's it like to live in these places? If there's a lot of crime, isn't it logical this would bother people and they would be concerned about that and they wouldn't want to get police off the streets that, you know, obviously nobody likes police brutality, but at the end of the day, your priority is for public safety. Sherelle Parker understood this very well in a recent successful run to be Philadelphia's mayor, where she outcompeted in the Democratic primary a couple of other uh, candidates who were significantly to her left on issues of public safety. And she was just like, I think she described herself as being in the OAM, the old ass moms club. It's like, you know, this is a, when I grew up, you know, you could leave your door open and go down to the store. And now, you know, you've got to step over broken glass and you don't even know if you'll make it. I mean, she was just like, you know, we got to get the criminals off the street. We've got to enforce the laws. Uh, and the, the idea, I mean, the bizarre, uh, you know, sort of thing that's happened with Democrats is they're even they won't even talk about law and order. I mean, that's like a supposed to be a racist code word. I mean, this is insane. It's not racist to enforce the law. It's not racist to get criminals off the street. And as you're pointing out, the very people who live in these communities want the criminals off the street. So who are you helping and who are you speaking for if you're acting like that's not important? Well, I think who you're speaking for, actually, is, you know, advocates who who push this kind of anti-policing kind of thing. You're speaking for white college-educated liberals who believe in this nonsense and don't live in these communities. That's who you're speaking for. Um, and, and that, that should really bother people. And that's, that's social injustice, not social justice. And, and that's I, cultural I, appropriation. Yeah, and, and yes, in a way. So, I mean, it, it is gobsmacking the extent to which the, there's this disjuncture between how a lot of people on the left of the Democratic Party look at the crime issue and how ordinary working class voters who live in these damn communities think about it. Well, what's fascinating is it's happening with the crime is that I think the profile of criminal behavior in many American cities has changed dramatically. It used to be that it was kind of ghettoized, that there was, you know, if you lived in Washington, D.C., there were just certain neighborhoods that were no-go neighborhoods. You know that the crime was there. But if you're living in the nicer areas, you know, it's not happening. Now, carjackings are everywhere. Uh, Crime is going everywhere. And you just look at San Francisco, where literally, you know, you, you people have to walk over, walk in the middle of the street to avoid needles and and uh, and everything on the streets. And one of the things that seems to be happening is that the sort of reasonable, centrist, moderate people in these Democratic-run cities mm-hmm. are just—they have lost hope that anything's going to change, and so they're leaving. And they're going, you know, California has had, you know, California, which is a state that has had for two centuries is go, go West young man in inflow of, of people to the country as now for the first time they ran out of U-Hauls because so many people were leaving and they're going to Florida and they're going to Texas and they're going to red States. Mm-hmm. And what we're having is a stove piping of America where more we're concentrating people who are concerned about these issues or are not happy with the democratic governance are going to red States and sort of strengthen, making those more red blue States are becoming more blue and, you know, how is that going to affect this political realignment, you know, where you have, you know, the, the people in New York, you look at New York, they're never going to reelect Rudy Giuliani, another Rudy Giuliani in New York, because all the people who would vote for that kind of person are gone. Mm-hmm. You know, how, do, how does yeah, Rudy Giuliani has gone too, Mark? I know, yeah, but, yeah. but a Rudy he's Giuliani. left the building. <laughs> very, very true with the uh, black hairpin dripping down the side of his face. But I mean, you know. There's a stovepiping happening in the in the country politically. It's 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 realigning the electoral map too, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, that's one reason why we talk in the book about, you know, what we feel is ultimately a stalemate between the parties. I mean, this polarization, yeah, it prevents a, it prevents the uh, Democrats from having a you know, sort of strong majority, and it has them always on you know, the precipice of, of a loss, even when they get into office. Same thing is true for the Republicans because of the, the way the polarization affects them. I mean, we're basically divided up into these two camps, and neither both parties have significant weaknesses, which are not really to compromise on, uh, and they're not willing to sort of try a new model of appealing to voters and of governance to try to sort of really break the stalemate. And I think what you're referring to, Mark, in terms of just basic governance issues is so important in terms of understanding why Democrats have put a sort of ceiling on their support. I mean, if you're going to sell your model of governing to the American people and to the working class, I mean, a lot of these cities that are run by Democrats are not a good advertisement. They're like a very bad advertisement. You know, not only are people leaving, the people who live there are increasingly beleaguered and dissatisfied and, and beset by social disorder. And maybe, you know, in the end, most people will not leave uh, because they're far enough away from the crazy, total craziness, but they're not happy about it, right? As you say, things are spreading out from the cores of disorder to affect larger parts of these urban areas. Um, this is just really bad. People would much prefer to live in an ordered society where the law is enforced, where the streets are clean, and they don't worry, you know, when they walk out the door, what's going to happen to them. And there's some data in this latest piece I put out in Liberal Patriot about how people are more worried about, you know, a bunch of a variety of different crimes, including carjacking, uh, than they've ever been. Uh, they're fair, more afraid to walk alone at night within a mile of their home than they've ever been in terms of how long Gallup has, has taken these, these particular questions. So this is a real deal. This is, a, this is part of people's quality of life. This is what they feel they're paying their taxes for, you know, to have safe streets and public order. And when they don't get it, they're, they're pretty unhappy. And as you say, Mark, some of the people are just going to take off and leave, uh, which is not good for the economic and, and political health of these communities. And uh, I find it remarkable in a way that Democrats have not woken up to just how bad it is for their brand that, you know, a lot of these places that are very Democratic identified seem to be being run so poorly. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, geez, they talk about needing a sister soldier moment. So uh, I, right, I want right. to, I, I want to, kind of... my advocate is for a Chesa Boudin moment. Uh, it's, it's moment has probably passed. Unfortunately, it would have been better to do it right after he was cashiered. But I thought that was a great opportunity. I mean, this putz gets thrown out of uh, by the voters of San Francisco. I mean, he represented everything that was in a sense wrong about Democrats approach to crime. Why not have a Chesa Boudin moment say, you know, the voters of San Francisco has spoken and we agree with them. This is not the way to approach, you know, the issues of crime and public safety. That's not what our party stands for. Chesa Boudin does not speak for us. Blah, blah, yeah. blah. But it never happened. They didn't get that. So I want to ask you about the pro-Hamas party, but I'll make that my exit question. I want to ask you about this question of abortion, because I think that you, you wrote a really great piece in the Liberal Patriot called The Eerie Complacency of Democrats, and you describe the self-congratulatory behavior in the wake of Dobbs that basically Democrats seem to believe they have a nuclear weapon on their side, uh, abortion rights. And 
um, certainly when you look at the off-year elections, so the this year's election, I think that the conventional wisdom that's settled in is, in fact, that yes, the Democrats did a lot better than people thought they were going to do. And the reason for that is, in fact, this nuclear weapon. It is abortion that's driving turnout among young women. That is going to be the thing that wins them every election from now on because Republicans are so out of touch with, with America. You don't seem to think that's true. What Explain to people why. Well, I mean, I think Democrats are certainly correct that on net, this is an issue that, that helps them. I mean, they are more or less on the right side of public opinion, which is supportive of a moderate pro-choice position. And there are elements of the Republican Party that are easily typecast. I mean, some of them really believe this, but of course, they try to portray the whole party as being essentially for a full stop, no exceptions, ban on abortion, extremely unpopular. So they've been able to to run in this really, really well in a lot of elections. But there are a couple of reasons to be a little skeptical about this. One is that if you look, for example, the 2022 election, uh, you know, if you look at the electorate, according to the, the exit polls, uh, there was a 25 point majority in favor of some kind of pro-choice position. But Republicans won the House vote by three points. So that's an awful lot of Republican pro-choice voters. If you look at Kansas, which was the first in a sort of sign that this was really you know, going to play in a certain kind of way, uh, the the referendum that would have put uh, would have said there was no right to abortion in the state constitution in Kansas was defeated by, I think, 18 points or so. And then but Laura Kelly uh, ran as a Democrat in the November election and only won by two points. So obviously a ton of people who voted you know, to sort of to defend abortion rights in a sense in Kansas also voted against Laura Kelly and for a Republican. And we see that in Ohio. I mean, Ohio, uh, they actually voted twice to defend abortion rights, first against a, a move to like make it hard to amend the state constitution because Republicans in Ohio knew this uh, referendum was initiative was going to come down. It was basically going to put abortion rights into the state constitution. That was defeated by, I think, 14 points. And then in the November election, just recently, they put the right, you know, abortion rights essentially in the state. That passed by 13 points. But this is the state that elected Mike, reelected Mike DeWine by 25 points, who was like, you know, signed a bill making the six week limit on abortion with no exceptions. That's pretty draconian. Um, you know, they elected J.D. Vance by six points against the pro-choice Tim Ryan. And right now in Ohio, the latest polling shows that Trump is ahead of Biden by 10 points. So the idea that you can translate support for abortion rights for some sort of pro-choice position at the automatic Democratic votes is just clearly not true. <laughs> so even in Virginia, which was also taken to be an example of this, is, um, and this has not been publicized as much as it should. I mean, Republicans, yeah, they didn't take back managed to gain control of the state legislature, but they did carry every district up to Biden plus nine uh, in terms of uh, their candidates. So so again, uh, you know, the Democrats held the line and then a bit more in Virginia against the Yunkin push to take, take over the state legislature. But it was fundamentally a status quo election. And in fact, if the Republicans did as well as they, they did in the state legislative elections nationwide, in other words, running the head of Trump and much closer to Biden. I mean, they'd actually have a great election. So um, all of this is to say that, yeah, abortion rights is a bit of thumb on the scales 
for Democrats, you could argue. Uh, but, you know, they're already down, right? So the thumb is just pushing the scale back up a little bit. But it's not an anvil. It's not like if they drop abortion rights on one side of the scale, you know, it sort of changes the whole calculus of everything. And they, you know, they win every election and everything's great. It is an issue. It's an important issue. And I think Republicans are scrambling to try to figure out how to defuse it on their side. And there's some evidence that if they basically just say, oh, we're just going to leave it to the states, you know, that's the decision of the Supreme Court. That's what we're going to do. Uh, we're not going to have a national law on this. Oh, no, no, that's not what we stand for. Uh, that would actually perhaps do some good uh, for the for the Republicans. But I think they now know they can't, not to get too much into the weeds on strategizing on this, but you can't just leave the issue alone and let the Democrats define it. You have to at least define an alternative, even if your alternative is just let's leave it to the Let's leave it to the states. I mean, Youngkin's 15-week limit, with exceptions thereafter, is actually not a crazy position, consistent with a lot of voters think. I don't think it really kind of worked as well as they thought it would in, in that election, but it's not crazy. And we should always remember that, yeah, I mean, people are moderately pro-choice, but are actually very leery about um, abortions after the first trimester. And in the, uh, and then the third trimester, they're just flat out against it. So... You know, the the real hardcore activist position on abortion rights, which obviously has a real presence in the Democratic Party, is abortion at any time, for any reason, you know, at will. That is not the position of the median voter, who is quite a bit more conservative on this issue. They want abortion rights in some form maintained, but they don't want, you know, a sort of uh, at will, any time kind of approach to abortion. So that may eventually come to be a bit more of a conflict and a problem for the Democrats. So far, they've been able to leverage the, the, the issue pretty easily in their favor by basically saying Republicans want to ban it completely. So we'll see what happens with that. But even in the, as it's played out so far, it hasn't been quite the magic bullet people think. And as I'm arg I argue in a piece that's just about to come out from the Post, we should never. Another important thing to remember here is Democrats are now, in a sense, low turnout election specialists, Right. Their coalition is engaged, it's more educated, it's more animated by an issue like abortion, and they're actually likely, because of the structure of their coalition, to do particularly well in off-year and special elections. And it's a much more of a challenge in a big presidential election when the peripheral voters come out of the woodwork, all of whom are less ideological and more likely to be um, sort of less partisan in terms of their view toward Democrats and Democratic issues and more open to voting for for Trump and Republicans. So I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. I mean, look, if you look at the Ohio election, for example, the exit polls showed that the people who voted in that election were plus two Biden from 2020. And of course, as we know, Ohio was plus eight Trump uh, in 2020. So a different flavor of voter shows up for a lot of these things. Not to say abortion rights isn't, you know, again, a thumb on the scales for the Democrats. But we should also keep in mind that so far, the Democrats have had an easy ride in terms of the type of voters uh, they've tried to activate and get to the polls in a presidential election, I think, will be will be quite different. Let's talk about the southern border and particularly the politics of the southern border. So we talked mm -hmm. about how this concept that demography is destiny, that minorities are necessarily going to vote Democratic is not being you know, proven true uh, because mm -hmm. minorities are stubbornly, some of them are stubbornly voting Republican. But demography as destiny has sort of produced a backlash or sort of a, its its own other side of the coin on the right called replacement theory. 
which is this idea that, uh, you know, that this is all intentional, that they're, the, the Democrats are trying to replace us intentionally. And uh, Walter Mead, our friend, wrote a great essay in Foreign Affairs about the Jacksonian revolt in 2016, trying to explain the rise of Trump. And one of the things he said is, when Jacksonians hear elites strong support for high levels of immigration, their seeming lack of concern about illegal immigration, they see an elite out to banish them from power politically, culturally, and demographically. And so you fast forward to 2020 and Biden comes in and the border just collapses and he seems to have no concern whatsoever about the record numbers of illegal immigrants coming into the country about, you know, the fact that they're, you know, the cartels are, you know, engaging in human trafficking, the drugs are flowing in and all the rest of it. But you look at a party where the president creates essentially an open border and seems to not care about it. And even reasonable people start to wonder isn't that intentional? <laughs> you know, isn't the why would Democrats not care about millions of people flowing into this country? Um, so the question I have for you is one, is it intentional? You know, is, is there a part of the Democratic Party that thinks, you know, illegal immigration is a path to political dominance? And if not, why on earth are the, is the Democratic Party not at all concerned about the, the southern border? Well, yeah, I mean, this is a huge problem for the Democrats at this point. I mean, it's pretty easy to establish using polling data just how unpopular the Democratic approach is. I mean, it's remarkable how low Biden's approval rating is in handling the border security. It's frequently measured in the 20s. Um, and, you know, Republicans are massively preferred on which party can better handle immigration and border security. And there's a good reason for that, which is that since Biden administration came in, and rescinded some of the Trump approaches and, and just took a really different approach to border security and toward the immigration issue. In a sense, it sent a signal, you know, Trump was, was a bad, mean man at the border, and we're going to be nice and open and friendly. And, you know, that signal was received, you know, through social media, amplified through a lot of other countries. Obviously, as you're pointing out, the cartels started playing a more active role, and they just, you know, they realized they could game the system. You come here, you claim asylum, you know, you get released into the United States, your court cases in a year and a half, never show up for that. Um, there are a lot of different mechanisms by which uh, these, these, these immigrants manage to get into the country and stay here. And obviously, the priority of the Biden administration wasn't to put a stop to that and tighten up the system. It was rather to keep it as it was. Now, why is that? I, don't, I guess I don't buy there's some Machiavellian... Well, the more more of these people we let in, eventually, when they get to be naturalized citizens or whatever, uh, they'll vote for us and that'll be great. I think a lot of it has to do with the way immigration has been treated as an issue within the Democratic Party, within its shadow party, as we talk about in the book. I mean, there's tremendous pressure on the Biden administration from the left wing of the party and from the advocacy groups who are concerned with immigration to keep it locked in terms of having a very porous border and to, like, scream bloody murder. If, uh, you know, anything is tried or even alluded to that would tighten up the border. Look what's happening now in terms of this proposed deal uh, to tie Ukraine and Israel aid to tightening up the asylum system and increasing border security. Um, some Democrats are willing to deal on this, but the groups are absolutely going crazy. You know, we can't do this. This is like a betrayal of everything Democrats stand for. You know, no human being is illegal. I, mean, I, I have a lot of these signs in my neighborhood here in Maryland. I just roll my eyes whenever I see them. No, that's not true. <laughs> I mean, people who break the law, in a sense, they are illegal. I mean, there is a such thing as breaking the law. I mean, illegal immigrants are, are illegal. 
Um, you know, of course, there was this Vogue. And you can't call them that, though. They're yeah, undocumented. Them, they're undocumented. We talk about that in the book, how that was a significant sea change in how Democrats and sort of the shadow party dealt with the issue. So if that's your perspective, then I think, yeah, you are going to keep the pressure on uh, to Biden to not make any deals on this and for all Democrats to sing from the same hymn book about. Now, a lot of the people who are who are trying to who are bailing out from this consensus to some extent, they are people who are near the border because they realize, you know, representatives and senators, this is like really unpopular, including with my Hispanic constituents that, you know, it's burdening these towns where these people show up. And, you know, a lot of these people feel, look, I, I came here the right way or I've been here for generations. And, and what the hell is going on, to use a, a phrase you guys like? Uh, and I think that, you know, if even if it's not a Machiavellian plan to pack the United States with more non-white voters, I think uh, it's nevertheless something they're just walking into. And maybe maybe some politicians think, well, yeah, this is kind of crazy and I'm a little worried it's going to hurt us politically and this maybe doesn't seem like such a great idea. Maybe down the road it'll pay off. I don't know. But I think it's more a sin of omission than commission in that respect. Exit question for me. Uh, you mentioned something about the, the party early in our conversation about the Democratic Party becoming not just the pro-Palestinian party, but in, in many honest instances, you should should be described as the pro-Hamas party. Uh, we've seen that mm-hmm. in some of the, the voting and, and certainly the statements from the far left on Capitol Hill. Why? What the hell? The, the Jewish mm-hmm. community has been a stalwart of the Democratic Party perhaps second only to black Americans. Okay? And yet the attitude of of the vanguard of the Democratic Party is, yes, the resistance, quote unquote, of Hamas on October 7th is something to be celebrated, not something to be deplored. How did this happen? Right. Well, I have a couple comments on that. I mean, one is, uh, well, I mean, one caveat here. I mean, it's certainly not the case that everybody at the Democratic Party feels this way, but there is clearly a significant contingent who is inclined to look at this as righteous rebellion against the settler colonial state. Um, and what's that about? Well, I think what that's about is we're seeing this re- it gets back to something I was talking about earlier with the melding of a wide range of seemingly unrelated progressive issues into one uber commitment to you know, client to uh, immediate and drastic action on making the United States run on renewables to relatively open borders to decriminalizing crime to, you know, defend trans rights above all else. Part of that now, too, is uh, free Palestine. Right. And, you know, if you you're really down with the free Palestine thing and, you know, Israeli Gaza is an open air prison and Israel is a colonial settler state, <clears throat> it does, I think, push you in the direction of being sympathetic to Hamas, or at least, you know, sort of their righteous rebellion, even if you don't like the leadership or whatever, but it puts you in a very vexed moral position toward, toward a terrorist massacre like this, where you're, in a way, wind up more excusing it than, than denouncing it. And I think that's, that's now become part of the progressive catechism, uh, is to be very, very sort of, not exactly okay with it, but you, you you know, real both sidesism, right? It's kind of like, well, of course they massacred 1,400 people. On the other hand, look at how many people Israel is killing with its bombing, and besides it's a colonial settler state. You know, I think that's really the origins of it, the, the joining together of a wide variety of issues into one set of overarching progressive commitments. One of my favorite 
pictures recently is a picture of Greta Thunberg, you know, the, the famous climate activist with a sign that says, you know, I stand with Gaza. Someone behind her is climate justice and free Palestine. It's like, what do these issues have to do with them? So this is ridiculous. So, but I mean, it just shows to go you how, how closely linked in the mind of a lot of the activists and sort of the right thinking people is on this, this set of issues and how it does lead them down the path toward being, you know, disturbingly tolerant toward an, ad, an organization like Hamas, which is, I mean, these are some of the worst people in the world. They're theocratic fascists. What are, what are you as a progressive doing, like, you know, being tolerant at all of where they're coming from? So this is pretty crazy. And my second comment is, I think an interesting thing about how it's affecting the Jewish community and some, uh, you know, a lot of liberals who, in general, whether they're Jewish or not, gone along with some of this kind of woke craziness is I think to some extent they've been willing to look the other way. And, you know, I don't want to annoy the kids. I don't want to you know, sort of cause any waves here. And maybe, you know, I want to be on the right side of history. And maybe some of the stuff is going too far. But I guess I can suck it up and be with the program. I think for some people, this is a bit of a deal breaker. It's like, okay, I accepted all this other bullshit, but <laughs> this is, this I can't accept. This is too much. And I think we see this with some of the donors to the universities and some of the people resigned from organizations like the Democratic Socialists and, you know, among a fairly wide variety of people. Now, whether this will spread beyond the people activated by this particular uh, act of lunacy to a more broader rejection of sort of the wokish left within the Democratic Party. We'll just have to see. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, this is for some people at least to get up and say, you know, enough, enough. This, you know, I can't, I can't go any farther down this road. You know, you've lost me. So exit question for me. Uh, you, you used a great phrase uh, to describe Biden as the designated normie. <laughs> for the Democratic Party. Um, and you talked about a little bit about how he's sort of been like this Trojan horse where he's, you know, a moderate Trojan horse where he's let in all these sort of crazy far left people into the White House who are sort of running running a lot of these different policies and moving the Democratic Party in, in this direction. He Polls show that super majorities think that he is too old uh, right, to be right. president. They do. Uh, you know, and he's sort of, he got the nomination in the first place because he was the least worst candidate. You know, there, there was, you know, there was no alternative that was not, that was a normie to, to, to lead the Democratic Party. I mean, if Biden can't make it to 2024, or let's even look post-Biden, is there another normie in the offing for Democrats? Is who Everybody I look at as a potential Democratic candidate is not a normie. I mean, Gavin Newsom's not a normie. Governor of Michigan, not a normie. I mean, all these people who 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 would throw their hats in the ring. I'm I'm looking for the next designated normie, and I don't see them. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that is. A, I think the bench is a bit thin for the Democrats at this point. Um, yeah. I mean, the three most obvious people who might step into the breach would be Kamala Harris, not a normie. You know, Gavin Newsom, definitely not a normie and also a terrible general election candidate, I think. I mean, everything people hate about California instantiated in one person doesn't seem like a good idea. J.B. Pritzker, clearly down the line, you know, wokish liberal governor of Illinois. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see him as being much of a normie. Now, Gretchen Whitmer, she's a little bit better, I think, you know, though, I think if you look carefully at her positions, and a lot of the things she says, she's very careful not to ruffle the feathers of of any of the people in the left wing of her party, though she does project at least a more normie image and doesn't say quite as many stupid things. But she wouldn't be my 
my choice. I'd be more interested in people like Josh Shapiro or Jared Polis or some other people who've been willing to to say and do things that are a little bit different have been more haven't been quite as willing to sign up with the latest, you know, woke madness. So, uh, but yeah, I think the the bench is thin, but I think that parties do correct themselves uh, when they receive signals eventually. Though, as you were pointing out earlier, Mark, it may take a long time. So I'm hopeful that people uh, and candidates will come out of the woodwork in <laughs> the fullness of time, as they say, in the rest of the 2020s. But I, I do think the people at the top tier who first come to mind, uh, wouldn't exactly, uh, you know, sort of move the Democrats back in a normie direction. I think quite the reverse. And that that is a problem. You know, no doubt about it. Really, thank you. We we loved having you on last time. We loved having you on this time. Everybody should go out and read your book with John, buy your book with John Judas. Where have all the Democrats gone? The soul of the party in the age of extremes. That is exactly what we've been talking about is the age of extremes. Thanks a ton and come back soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. I look forward to next time. Amazing. Take care. So, Danny, what do you think? So, uh, I was at Columbia University uh, giving a talk about not about the Middle East, but about, but about, actually about Donald Trump and all these trials and the effect on on small d democratic politics in America and foreign policy. And it was me and another guy um, who's a well known um, Democratic presidential historian, smart, good, and we we mostly agreed on a lot of stuff. So that was great. But at the very end, and the whole thing was off the record, but at the very end, this guy um, who was an older student, a foreign service officer mid-career, asked me how I thought leadership could work in the foreign service because this has become a huge problem. And so I I gave my answer. And you know what my answer is. My answer is almost always the same, which is that, you know, leadership matters, right? And at the end, I said, maybe they could focus on, you know, those things like the fact that they work for the president of the United States and focus a little less on their precious uh, concerns about their pronouns, and then I had to leave, right? I had to, I ran. I said, everybody, I gotta go. Ran, hopped in an Uber. Well, apparently, après moi le déluge, the entire group, which had been tolerant of everything I had been saying, whether conservative or anything else about foreign policy, defending Trump's foreign policy and all of that, that was the end, right? She lost us. And I was just like, you know, what did I freaking blaspheme? And the answer, you did. I did. You did I did. And it is such a forcible reminder of the not just semi-religious, the absolute religious doctrinal obeisance to wokeism that has replaced belief in God, belief in family, belief in your country. It is insane. And when you see it at work, it is just horrifying. No, it's exactly right. But it's going to be the death of the Democratic Party. Uh, because I think from your mouth to God's ears. Yeah, because I think they don't they don't see it. Uh, they don't realize it. Rui sees it, you know. And I think one of the things that he said, which was fascinating, is how this this sort of embrace of Hamas could now be like the tipping point, where you know people are like okay, you know, pronouns fine. Let's be nice to everybody. Okay, you know, climate change. Yeah, fine, whatever. You know, like I'll, I'll I'll try and help. You know. <laughs> You know, I'll buy a Tesla. I'll buy a Tesla or whatever, you know, at that. But at some point when you're embracing terrorism and you're embracing a, a, a group that just massacred, raped, murdered, beheaded, you know, uh, you know, people, 
at, at some point, that's the, the it gets to be too much. And the people here is where I draw the line. Hatred of Jews and evisceration of pregnant women. Thank you for your bold courage. Exactly, but but I mean, truly, it's like this could be the. You know, some people are saying I I listen to Megyn Kelly's podcast a lot, and she thinks this could be the death of woke. I think that it's it may not be the death of woke because I think these people are living in a bubble. Um, and they don't actually meet people who don't disagree. Like, I don't think a lot of these people have met somebody who would who would sort of humorously meant, talk about pronouns. It's like no, that, well, that, no, that's exactly right. And by the way, that. for everybody for everybody who's listening, what I'm referring to is that there was a huge revolt in the Foreign Service over the use of pronouns and wanting to make it mandatory. And there ended up being, for some reason, there ended up being some electronically related misunderstanding. And so the the poobas of the State Department had to apologize because they had not properly addressed the issue of the use of pronouns and offer foreign service officers counseling to deal with the trauma of it this actually happened this year so i mean most americans look at that and think that's insane it is insane Insane. they're right but you know but you you made some offhand reference to this that that wasn't bowing at the altar of transgenderism and suddenly you're like anathema right oh no no i mean i'm a racist scumbag but but part of it is because the people in the room in Columbia University who you were talking to don't encounter people who don't share this ideology That's in their right. daily lives. That's they, and, and, and you came in like this conservative mind virus into their into their ecosystem and said something just offhand that they just found shocking. And what they don't understand is that this is like a 70, 80 percent of the country agrees with you. Yeah, that no, that's not. right. And that, it, that, like, this, is the, this is the deplorable problem and, and all so over again. As, as a political party, as they, as they become increasingly a party of elites and not connected with the working class. I mean, the people who, if they cared about winning back the working class, they would, you know, the working class voters are with you on this. <laughs> you know, they, yeah. they, they, don't, they wouldn't be offended by what you said. They don't encounter those people. And so therefore they're going to lose them. Um, because they, they increasingly those voters, and it's not just as, as Rui points out, it's not just white working class voters that are abandoning the Democratic right, Party. Right, right. It's, it's people of color. It's my it's minority working class voters that are abandoning the Democratic Party. They are basically sending up flares saying we don't share your values. Thing. And so people are not going to vote for a party that that is like that. So the more that they become the party of the least, the more that they embrace this wokeism, the more they're going to lose elections over time. And they're counting on basically Republicans, Trumpism and MAGA is their crutch that gets them out of confronting this, the real systemic problems in their party. Because, those are, well, the Republicans will just keep blowing themselves up the way they did in 2020 and in the way they did in the 2022 midterms and putting up unappealing candidates. Um, eventually, they they might end up being more unappealing than those unappealing candidates to normal Americans, and it won't work anymore. <laughs> Let's hope that's true. Let's hope. Oh, so you're endorsing Trump? You're, you're hoping that Trump is going to win? No, I, I, I <laughs> that's uh, what I'm saying. I'm saying I know, never, 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 never. But you're so far left and so woke and embrace terrorism and like that. And guess what? Donald Trump is going to is going to look a lot more appealing. Uh, and that whole anti-MAGA thing might not work anymore if you go. Maybe to that that may be true. It's not going to work with me, but that may be true in the country. Yeah. And on that not terribly optimistic or happy note, thank you everybody for joining us. Take care. See you next week. 
Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.